If you have a Bible, please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, towards the end of our New Testament. Let me read about this topic of trials and temptation and blessing. This is what he writes, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he, and every time you see he or these masculine pronouns, it means he and she, it's inclusive, men and women. For when he or she has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you just take a moment and invite God to speak to you today through his word so you'll have understanding? Go ahead and do so just privately, and then I'll pray for all of us. Father, we want to hear from you today. And we have sung to you this morning and thought about the glorious future that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he has overcome sin, death, and the grave, and through faith, that victory becomes ours. And yet, while we have such an incredible hope for a future that is secured, we still face trials of today. And in the midst of those trials, we feel temptation arise within our hearts. Father, help us as we talk about this issue to see that you have given us all that we need to overcome. And as we do, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will bless us. That's what we desire. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Kent Hughes tells a story that I've heard in different versions over the years. Different name, different situation, but similar story. A young woman at his church came to Christ in a miraculous way. Part of her conversion and repentance had to do with the fact that her marriage was struggling horribly. And so her life, when she came to faith in Jesus, was changed. Her husband's life, however, was not. She was truly a new person, a new creation, and yet he was still far from God. And so for the next year or so, she struggled with wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to embrace her new identity, while her husband was still pushing away from the truth of the gospel. 
So she went to get help from a Christian counselor. And what started as, a, as sympathetic words from the counselor became seductive words of temptation. Slowly, session after session, she gave in. She was the victim of a wolf in sheep's clothing. But she was also a victim of her own choices and decisions. And when she showed up in the office of Pastor Hughes, she didn't put the blame on the Christian counselor or herself. She said through clenched teeth, I asked God to lead me to the right person, and he led me to this man. It is God's fault. He is to blame for what happened. The story in this case ended well. After years of sorrow and really misery, she came to repentance of her sin. She remained married. She reconciled with her husband, and her husband came to faith. But this woman's ridiculous accusation at God is nothing new. Remember Adam? He did the same thing. He said to God, The woman you gave to, me, to be with me gave me this fruit from the tree of life, and I ate it. In other words... It's not as much her fault as it's your fault, God, because you were the one who gave her to me. And yet, by God's incredible mercy and grace, God gave them 930 more years of marriage together. <laughs> to work that one out. <laughs> and none of Adam's children ever liked to take the blame for their sin either. And we are children of Adam. Blaming gods was the norm in the culture of the world during the New Testament when it was being written. And so these gods of the Greek and the Roman pantheon, in their mythology, they would taunt and tempt and tantalize humanity for their own selfish reasons. And the Jews who lived amongst this culture, around this culture, would have been influenced to a degree by this culture. And they might have been tempted to think, it is God who is doing this to me. How tempting is it to think, really, I know these thoughts have crossed my mind. How about you? That if God is in control, he is sovereign, he's in control of all things, that means he's in control of my life and my future, then I guess he has ordained this sin. How tempting is it to think, God made me with these passions and desires. He knows how strong they are. He knows how he wired me. He knows I'm not perfect. What does he expect? Pastor Hughes also reminded me of Ernest Hemingway, who was well known for his indulgence in sensualities. And he saw these things as art. Hemingway said this, there is a right way to drink a margarita, to shoot an antelope, to eat a shrimp, and to commit adultery. A man or woman who fulfills his or her lusts with artistic style is authentic, which means good. So our society doesn't help us with the problem of temptation, it enhances it. And I'll take it a step further. Our society not only enhances the problem, it justifies and promotes the problem. Here's the message of our society. See if you can relate. 
That all the stuff you struggle with, that according to the word of God, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is to rid our lives through the process that is called in the Bible sanctification, meaning we become more and more like Jesus, all those things that we do in contrast to the gospel, the world says that is completely normal. More than that, they would say it's healthy. And what does the world say of our Christian teaching on righteousness and purity. Read the articles, friend. Uh, check out the internet. Look at some health magazines. Do the, all the rest of it. If, if you look into it, the Christian teaching on righteousness and purity, according to the word of God, as being talked about in our society today, it is oppressive and harmful. It is hurting us by living such a way. When we rationalize our appetites or excuse our sins, we are following the ways of Satan himself. We're in a series called No One Ever Told Me. And maybe you never realized that when you started following Jesus that you will always face temptation. Isn't that annoying too, by the way? Like you come to faith in Christ and you're like, all right, I'm a new person. I'm saved by his grace. I have the Holy Spirit. And now... While I'm following Jesus, I'm still struggling with all this temptation. I still feel these pulls within me, these issues within me that are arising. That even when you feel like you're getting over something, it still returns. Discipleship Magazine, I mean all this list is really birthed out of the Bible itself, but they came up with the top nine answers to the uh, things that Christians struggle with. So they took surveys of American evangelicals and they came up, here's the main ones, and really it's no surprise because you find all of them in the scriptures. But this is their list of nine. See how many of them you can relate to. Materialism, which is really a result of consumerism. Pride, self-centeredness, which is really a result of radical individualism. Laziness, anger, sexual lust, envy, gluttony, dishonesty. Are these God's fault? James helps us see that God is not the source of temptation. He is, in fact, the opposite. He is the source of blessing. Not the source of temptation, but the source of blessing. And that's really what we're looking into today, that responding to temptations while we're in the midst of trials properly will lead to God's blessing. That as we respond to the temptations we face in the midst of the trials that we're enduring, if we can do this properly, it will lead to his blessing. I love this little letter tucked away in the New Testament. It begins with just one name. Let me give you a little background to James so we can know where we are in the flow of his thought and really what he's after here within this little letter. And uh, without much further detail except for one phrase, this is how he introduces himself. Verse 1, James, a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that are scattered amongst the nations. So those who are Jewish Christians that are part of the dispersion, he says, greetings. Now James needed no further introduction. He didn't need to explain who he was or who his dad was or what his job was. Because when they read his letter, that was, uh, as they read it, as churches scattered across the Greco-Roman world, when they read this letter, they knew exactly who he was. He was the James. Who's the James? It's 
the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So they shared the same mother, Mary, and yet James was the son of Mary and Joseph. Now this letter is most likely the oldest letter we have in the entire New Testament. It was written before the famous council in Jerusalem that happened in 49 AD. So this is just a decade or a decade and a half removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And James, remember, James became the pastor of the church, guess where? In Jerusalem, ground zero. And he was so prominent in the early church and so influential that when Peter, the apostle Peter, and when Paul, where we get most of our New Testament epistles, where when, you, when they had a disagreement, guess who they went to to try to get that sorted out? James in Jerusalem to have a council. And to work through the issue. So this letter reflects Jewish Christian teaching that just was a few years after the resurrection. It was written before Paul's letters and communicated a very subjective view of faith. Let me explain that. Basically, that means that he wrote to say that faith that is real, faith in Christ that is real, is faith that works. So what does that mean? Well, the letter is filled with what's called 54 imperatives. Imperative is just a command, so hang with me here for a second. So he gives 54 commands in this letter. Do this, do this, don't do that, do this instead. 54 imperatives, 54 commands. But he does this not to tell us what to do so that we will gain God's salvation through our works. He tells us what to do because of our salvation that is already at work in us. Are you following that, friends? Okay, there's like three of you. I need to know a few of you are with me. A few more. Because this is very important for us to understand that, that, that he's saying, as I share these imperatives, as I share with you how your Christian life is supposed to look and what it's supposed to look like and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to respond, I'm not doing this and creating these lists so that you will think that you're okay with God. It's not if you do enough of this, you'll be all right. The point is because you're already approved by God, already one of God's children, you already have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you already have the Holy Spirit, now in light of that salvation, this is how you're supposed to live. That's what he's talking about. And so he runs through three themes, trials, wisdom, and riches and poverty. And so in the first 11 verses, he introduces these three themes, and then in verse 12, it hinges there, and he summarizes with a beatitude type of blessing. So the first 11 verses introduce the themes, verse 12 introduces a change, and what he's going to do is he's going to expound upon the first of those themes, which is trials. He begins talking about what happens when we're in the midst of a trial and we face temptation. And so what must we do in the face of temptation? We're going to learn a response to that question today. First, don't waste the trial. Go for the crown. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So when we come out uh, on the other side of the trial, he's saying there's blessing there. The condition for God's blessing and the timing of the blessing is when we have stood the test, when we have overcome the test. Now, the word for test had to do with the testing of metals and coins, 
The idea was that there was a process to prove that the metal or the coin was authentic, that it was genuine. So the testing here reveals the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith. Maybe you're thinking, well, then I'm in big trouble because I've failed a lot of these tests. Well, you're in good company because so is every other disciple of Jesus Christ. We all have. But notice that James understands that while we might fail along this journey, the work of the Holy Spirit in us will ultimately overcome. You say, how how can you know that from what you just read? Look at the language closely. He says, for when he has stood the test. For when he or she has stood the test. Not if he or she stands through the test, but when. That's assurance. He's saying for those who are in Christ, it will be done. God will bring us through the trial. We lose battles along the way, but we will ultimately, through the gospel, be victorious. It's good news. And when we are by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ victorious in our trial, then blessing. The blessing that we receive is what he refers to as the crown of life. The crown of life, it was something given to athletes who won a competition. So the hard work they put in, the things that they would choose not to eat, the things, I struggle with that all the time. Um, So I'd be a horrible athlete at this point going for things. But the things they choose to eat, not eat, the sleep they choose to get, the workouts they choose to do, all of this hard work they put in, and then they get the reward for that effort for that training. And that's what's going on here. We, he's saying uh, the same thing, really, that the Apostle John was saying, that our reward is entering into the presence of Almighty God and living eternally with Him. This is this crown of life, which could better be translated instead of the crown of life. I think a better translation is the crown which is life. So as you endure through the trial, as you overcome the temptation, you will receive the blessing. What's the blessing? It's the crown which is life. You receive eternal life with God. New life. This is the prize. This is the end. This is the hope. And James and John also say that this reward is for those who love God. And our love for God is proven genuine. It's proven authentic through our obedience. So we obey. Hear this carefully. We obey because we are loved. We do not obey in order to be loved. Now, regardless of your temptation, you can pick from the nine that I mentioned earlier. Maybe you're like, yeah, well, I mean, when I think about that list, I'm like, yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah, maybe not as much. Yes, there's like a bunch. What about you? And when you think about that list, here is the real question when it comes to temptation. Do we think God's blessing will bring more joy than indulging in the temptation? That is the real question. Do we really think that God's blessing is better than the pleasure we experience in the sin. St. Augustine struggled much of his life with sexual lust. He wrote about how he begged God to take away this issue in his life, and eventually he had a breakthrough, and it helped him to start overcoming his temptation. This is what he wrote. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Did you notice that he calls his sin fruitless joy? 
Do you realize that when we give in to sin, when we give in to temptation, it feels to us as joy? The thing is, it's illegitimate joy, but it's joy nonetheless. And so he's experiencing this illegitimate joy, not divine joy, demonic joy, really, because of how he was living. We do the same. He says, you drove them from me. You drove these fruitless joys, these illegitimate joys from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. So when we give up the temptation and we receive the command of God and overcome the temptation, then we receive sovereign joy. That is legitimate joy, lasting joy. And as we give in to sin, we know this so well. You give in to the sin, there's pleasure in the moment, whatever that might be, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, now I feel wretched because the Holy Spirit starts working on you. But on the other side, when you overcome the temptation and you feel peace and you feel a weight lifted and it's gone, then you feel legitimate joy that lasts. This is what happens. Augustine knew this. He says, you drove them from me and took their place. You are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. He discovered that there was no more joy. He discovered that there was greater joy in obedience than in the pursuit or the falling into the temptation. The other side of obedience, it says here, is life. And that's exactly what the psalmist says. And on Psalm 63, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life. God's steadfast love is better than life. Do you believe that the pleasures you can receive from God's steadfast love given to you through Jesus Christ is better than the pleasure that is promised to you in the temptation? That is the question. So what must we do in the face of temptation? Don't waste the trial. Gain the crown. Secondly, don't blame God. Realize the problem is not from above, but from within. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God's word is very clear here. Adam, in Genesis 3, his pathetic attempt at blaming God, regardless of how well you and I rephrase it, because that's what we tend to do, it is always groundless. We must never say or imagine that God is the source of our temptation. He never has tempted us and he never will. Why? James tells us. Because God cannot be tempted. He's untemptable. He is unsusceptible to any form of evil. He has no desire for it. He is repulsed by it. He tests us. He refines us. He allows trials He proves our mettle. He proves our authenticity, our genuineness. But he does not tempt us. So where is the source of the temptation then? If he allows the trial, then where does it come from? Verse 14 gives us the answer. And our culture pushes back on this answer. The answer is, it is from the evil within each of us. 
It's almost laughable when you talk to our culture about that. Like if you go to our culture and you're like, okay, okay, I, I just want you to know that the stuff you're struggling with that our culture, by the way, doesn't even say is a struggle. They say that's just part of being a human being and having life and actually enjoying life to the best of its ability. But when we say to them, yeah, but it's wrong and you shouldn't do this kind of stuff and you're giving your body over and you're giving your mind over and you're giving your uh, will over, you're giving all these things over and you're being controlled by all this other stuff, okay, okay, well, maybe it's a little wrong, but, you know, the thing is, um, I kind of like it. And I don't think it was really my doing. I think it's my environment, my upbringing, my boss, my wife, my kids, they're all to blame but even if it's wrong, I don't think it was like, I don't think it means that I'm evil or there's any evil in me. Like when you try to tell somebody, do you realize that there's like really dark evil inside of you? <laughs> How are they going to respond to that? Yeah, I just want you to know like when you were born, you're born with evil, you know, like that's not something people like to hear. In our culture, it's just, no, we're all good. And so there's other things we can blame. We don't really have real responsibility. It wasn't really our fault. And this is just normal anyways, and it's healthy for you. So what's your problem? That's our culture's reply. And yet the evil is within us. God doesn't mince words. Romans chapter 5, listen to what Paul writes. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through the sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice Paul's argument. Follow it closely. He's saying we share such commonality with Adam from Genesis 3 that when Adam sinned, we sinned. And yet we weren't even born yet. We're proven to be in, in the same sickness, with the same contamination of Adam, the same infection as Adam, we prove it a million times over by our own actions. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted and they fell into their sin. When they fell into their sin, typically people, men and women throughout history, put that into three big categories. They fell into the lust of the flesh. That's the first, that Eve saw that the tree was good for food. They fell into the lust of the eyes. The tree was a delight to the eyes. They fell into the pride of life. It, it says that it was to be desired to make one wise. And we... We are tempted when we are lured, it says, and enticed by our own desires. That includes our appetites, our need for approval, and our prideful ambition, just like Adam and Eve. Our appetites, our need for approval, and our prideful ambition. Lured and enticed, it's interesting language, isn't it? It's the language of fishing. And so I brought... Two of my favorite lures today, which I will be using in the lakes of Ontario in just a few weeks from now. And, and these are two of my favorites. Uh, this one here, this red one, and this one here, this yellow one, the diamond one. And I've caught a whole bunch of northern pike on these two lures. The reason why this one's in a package is because on my last cast, the last time I was fishing for northern pike, I lost this one. So I went immediately to the store before I even got home and bought another one. So it's still in its package. And so these are my two favorite ones. I've caught a lot of pike, a lot of walleye on these lures. Josiah does this one with me oftentimes. And this one, it's right on the package. I just want you to know. It says, tempting fish for over 100 years. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. And appropriately enough, they're called daredevils. 
And as I think about these lures, as I think about this lure that's, that's kind of going through the water, it, it's something about the, the combination of the speed, the sunlight reflecting off the metal, the way it moves, it's called a spoon, the way it moves through the water, it entices the pike out of their weeds and out of their homes, and they just like gotta have it. They just gotta have it. And, and so they go after it. There's something about in the boat as it's going through the water, that fish just, I'm leaving my home and I'm going after it. And James knows this well. He knows that when we are drawn away from safety, we are, or put it this way, we are drawn away from safety when temptation passes by. It's like there it goes, and we're in our homes, and they're comfortable, and they're safe, and there's Christian community, and we're remembering who we are, and we have the word of God, but there it goes, and wow, it's so shiny. It looks so good. And then we go chasing after it, and we, we, we throw caution to the wind, and in a moment, we forget who we are, we forget what we are, and we bite. Sometimes people love to blame the devil. It's right on the lure. It's the devil. The devil made me do it. But James tells us the source of the temptation is not God or the devil. It's our own hearts. It's our own hearts. And so, so often when people blame all these other things, Christians love to blame the devil. It's really an arrogant claim. Do you really believe that the devil's that concerned with you out of 8 billion people on this planet? Like there's 8 billion people. He's one being. He can only deal with one person at a time. And, and we're going to blame everything on him because we're passing the buck? No, 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 no. James says it comes from within it comes from within. We, when we forget who we are, when we forget whose we are, when we forget the word of God, then we bite. I remember a distinct afternoon when my sweet Leah was just five years old. The memory is grounded in my mind. So that means she was five, Josiah was three, and Eliza like wasn't even a figment in our imagination at the time. So I come home, and my wife was taking a shower, and that means my kids had free reign for a few moments of the house. Usually that led to some kind of nonsense happening. So the moment I walked in the door, typically I'd say, hey, I'm home, Leah, even now at 11 years old, daddy's home, and she runs up, gives me a hug, gives me a kiss, and that's kind of our routine. She still does it right now, but then on that day... I walk in and she just starts running down the hallway, running the opposite direction. And so I called her back and I said, Leah, come, out, come here, daddy's home. She walks back and she immediately flips a switch. And believe it or not, she had a temper tantrum. She had lots of them as, kid, as a kid. And by temper tantrum, I mean she was sobbing uncontrollably, face beat red. And what she would do is she'd do this arm clench thing like she was punching the ground. She'd go like this, and she'd start stomping her foot, and she's just going, and she's doing this thing, and she's weeping, and she's crying, and she, does, she can't even take a breath when I'm asking her what's wrong. Just then, my son walks in the room with chocolate all over his face. I said, Josiah, why do you have chocolate all over your face? Did you eat a cookie? He said, yes. 
I said, how did you get it? You couldn't reach them. We put them up high. They're in the cookie jar. He said, Leah gave it to me. So then I take a closer look at Leah and realize she's got chocolate on her face too. At this point, I turn into the investigator. I knock on the bathroom door and ask Katie, why is Leah upset? And here's when things started to make sense. Katie says she's probably mad because she asked me for a cookie and I said not until after dinner. Then a few minutes later, Katie said she came back up the stairs and said to me, Mom, Josiah already took a cookie and ate it. Can I have one too then? Well, then I figured out what happened. (laughs) She was told she couldn't have the cookie, so she gives one to her brother. Then she walks back to her mom and says, well, he had one, so I'm going to have one too, and then she ate one herself. Pretty clever for a five-year-old. And I said, well, why did you do this? And she said, because I wanted it. (laughs) She was... Lured away and enticed by the cookie jar, just going through the water. That looks good. And I want to eat that so bad. And so she went after it. And she was lured away, not by the devil, by her own lusts. Just like I am and just like you are. Romans 13, 14 tells us, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make No provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So temptation is going to come. It's it's going to swim by the home every once in a while. That certain time of day when the light's catching it just right, when it just looks so good. And when it comes by, don't add to the issue and go stare at the cookie jar. Don't go looking at it and just, just walking in. No. No, and just back and forth and back and forth. Richard Baxter said it like this, keep as far as you can from those temptations that feed and strengthen the sins which you have overcome. Lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance and life. And what is the result of that temptation? which leads to sin. That fish hooks, it bites, and he's hooked, and he's as good as dead. And that's what it is, is death. Sin leads to death. And this is why the gospel is so beautiful. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thirdly, don't be deceived. Believe and receive God's good gifts. Every good gift, he says here, is from God. And that is best represented in the gift of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was lured. He was enticed. It swam by. (coughs) And yet when he was lured and enticed, not just by the things of this world, but he could actually say by the devil himself, he remained without sin. He never thought the bait looked any good. He never desired it. 
He was repulsed by it, like his father. He was perfect, righteous, a perfectly righteous gift of love to us, coming down from the Father of lights. He took on the fully grown sin in all of us, and that fully grown sin killed him on the cross. He died for our sin. He took our death. The beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel message, friends, is that the death he tied is applied to you. The life he lived is applied to you. And his victory over death is applied to you through faith. And if you submit to him, you will not experience spiritual death. You will be given the perfect gift from God of eternal life. And this gift does not change because God does not change. It does not come and go. It's secured in us through the Holy Spirit. By his will we have come to faith. By his will we have received the Spirit. By his will we overcome. By his will we ultimately conquer the sin that so easily entangles. By his will we will resist temptation and the devil and he will flee from us us. By his will, we are new creatures, sons and daughters of the Most High God. That means everything good, every gift, every victory, every blessing is from our Heavenly Father who is pure light. There is no darkness in him. He is the Father of lights, giving blessing, showering blessing upon his own. Is he your Father? Through faith in Jesus, have you received his perfect gift, this perfect gift that was given to us? What must we do to face and overcome temptation? Don't waste the trial. Get the crown. Don't blame God. Realize that the source of the temptation is within you. Don't be deceived Believe and receive God's good gifts. What are God's good gifts? It's every spiritual blessing. All the spiritual fruit that were a first fruits of new creations. What are these gifts? It means that love is yours. Peace is yours. Patience is yours. Kindness is yours. Goodness is yours. Through faith in Jesus, faithfulness is yours by the blood of the Lamb. Gentleness is yours because you've overcome. Self-control, friends, is yours. So, when it comes swimming by, it's going through the water. And you're feeling that enticement, that lure. You need to realize you don't need more self-control. You already have it. It's in you. You don't need more gentleness. You already have it. It's in you. You don't need more joy. You already have the joy of Jesus Christ within you. Every good gift, yours, because of Jesus. Love, yours, all this ours as we submit our lives to Christ, God's perfect gift. I don't know what trials you're in. I don't know what's on your list. Some of you I do. (laughs) But as you face those, realize there's greater pleasure on the other side of obedience than in that sin.
and realize everything you need, you already have. And as we overcome, we will be given the prize, God. We can't do this on our own, can we? It's impossible. We have to have help. We need friends, we need brothers, we need sisters, we need community, we need the word. Most of all, we need Jesus. If you would, just bow with me now and let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Father, you are the Father of lights. In you there is no darkness, no shifting shadow. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who does, does not change, ever. And that means, Father, that anyone who's here this morning who feels like, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm on the hook. I feel like I've been hooked. And spiritual death is what I deserve. Help them in these moments, even as we sing, even as I pray, that they would receive Jesus and submit their life to him, understanding that he has taken their death and he brings them new life. And he has overcome so that they might also overcome. Father, help us to submit our lives to him continually. That it's not a one-time thing, that Every day we need to desperately cry out to you and say, we just need you, Jesus. We need you. Every minute, every hour, every day, we need you. And through your mercy and grace given to us in your spirit. Father, we will endure those trials. We will overcome the temptation. And we will one day see you face to face. Help us never fall away on account of Jesus Christ. Help us to stand firm. Help us to stand in you. Father, our prayer even this morning is that we need you. I pray that we'd be filled with a heart of confession, but also a heart of passion and plea. And Father, as we sing even now, I pray this would be a response, a passionate response response to all that you are and all that you're doing and all that you are uh, will do in each of us we pray these things in jesus name amen would you stand and sing